My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Tax collectors and sinners were all drawn near to listen to Jesus. But the Pharisees and scribes began to complain, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So to them he addressed this parable. What man among you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, would not leave the ninety-nine in the desert and go after the lost one until he finds it? And when he does find it, he sets it on his shoulders with great joy. And upon his arrival home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in just the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. Or what woman, having ten coins and losing one, would not light a lamp and sweep the house and search it carefully until she finds it? And when she does find it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, because I found the coin that I lost. In just the same way, I tell you, there will be more rejoicing among the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then he said, A man had two sons, and the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of your estate that should come to me. So the father divided the property between them. After a few days, the younger son collected all his belongings and set off to a distant country where he squandered his inheritance on a life of dissipation. When he had freely spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he found himself in dire need. So he hired himself out to one of the local citizens who sent him to his farm to tend the swine. And he longed to eat his fill of the pods on which the swine fed. But nobody gave him any. Coming to his senses, he thought, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food to eat? But here am I dying from hunger. I shall get up and go to my father, and I shall say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as you would treat one of your hired workers. So he got up and went back to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father caught sight of him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But his father ordered his servants, quickly, bring the finest robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals 
on his feet. Take the fattened calf and slaughter it. Then let us celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Then the celebration began. Now the older son had been out in the field, and on his way back, as he neared the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked him what this might mean. The servant said to him, Your brother has returned, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf, because he has him back safe and sound. He became angry, and when he refused to enter the house, his father came out and pleaded with him. He said to his father in reply, Look, all these years I served you, and not once did I disobey your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat to feast on with my friends. But when your son returns, who swallowed up your property with prostitutes. For him, you slaughtered the fattened calf. He said to him, My son, you are here with me always. Everything I have is yours. But now we must celebrate and rejoice because your brother was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. The Gospel of the Lord. Do you think that you can become a saint? When we think of a saint, for the most part, we have these extraordinary biographies, statued or stained glass images that come to mind that they can seem hard for us to relate to and so far away from our own experiences. It's one reason that I think Mother Teresa of Calcutta still captures our attention as much as she does. It's hard to believe that this past Monday, it was 25 years ago that she died. It seems so much more recent. Maybe because we were able to get so many glimpses of her extraordinary life in real time where she was serving the poorest of the poor, the sick, the dying, and those who were abandoned, where we could hear her speak and the light and love of Christ radiated in all that she said and did, that even in our jaded and at times very cynical modern era, her example humbled and inspired people all around the globe such that she was beatified only six years after her death in 2003 and canonized as a saint by Pope Francis in 2016. She's one of the few that so many of us got to see her her holiness while she was living and were also blessed to be alive ourselves as she was officially canonized. Well, it was probably back in 1996 when I actually got to meet this future saint. I was a seminarian at the time, and my pastor, Father Marcon, at St. Agnes and Clark, at the end of Sunday Masses, had said to me, 
do you have any plans this afternoon? I said that I had, and he told me, come back later that day, that he had been invited to something very special that I wouldn't want to miss. So I went back that afternoon having no idea what was going on. And as we started driving, he explained that every other week, he had been teaching the religious sisters of Mother Teresa's community a class in church history at their convent in North Plainfield. And that Mother Teresa kind of secretly had come for a visit to the sisters and was there that day. And the sisters were inviting some of their close friends, including Father Marcone, to come meet her. Not going to lie, I started to freak out a bit. I mean, what do you say to a living saint? The physically dead saints, the ones who are alive in heaven and in God's presence, they're a lot easier to talk to when you're just praying, you're asking for various needs. But a living saint, could she see into my soul? And if she could, that's a little scary to think about. But anyway, we get to the convent. We're being led into the chapel where they were having adoration of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament in this time of silent prayer. And as I walked into the chapel, there she was in the very last row in the back in a wheelchair, just sitting immersed in prayer. I had to take a a seat a few rows in front of her, and I have to admit, I was not as attentive to the Lord as I should have been, as I was trying not to look back at the frail little woman who, despite her stature and declining health, still radiated in a way that only faith in the risen Christ can explain. Well, when the holy hour had concluded, we were all led to an outside room where Mother Teresa was going to greet the visitors that had been invited. Father Marcone walked in front and spoke to her for a few minutes, and then he turned to introduce me. He said, Mother Teresa, this is Jim Churn. He's a seminarian studying for the priesthood from our parish. I couldn't believe it. Here I was meeting her, and she had this amazing smile, and she grabbed my hand with both of her hands, and we had an encounter I'll never forget. She said, you're studying to be a priest. I said, yes, mother. She said, where? I said, here in New Jersey at Immaculate Conception Seminary, studying for the Archdiocese of Newark. And then came the part I've replayed in my mind a million times and I'm still kind of horrified and embarrassed about. Mother Teresa said, you must come to Calcutta And without even the slightest pause or hesitation, I said, you must talk to my archbishop. I instantly and immediately shot down a living saint. At which point, she laughed, thankfully. I didn't mean to instantly and immediately shoot down this saint's suggestion. Although Father Marcone and countless others have basically argued that's exactly what I did. And I followed it up with questions like, why do you hate Mother Teresa? Why do you hate the poor? Neither of which is remotely true. I'm still shocked that despite all my nerves, my admiration for this woman at a moment like that, that I would have such a stupid Jersey Italian guy response, you know, not diplomatic at all and very frank. I remember one friend ribbing me saying, you said no to a saint, good luck with that. So back to my initial question, do you think that you can become a saint? Despite my embarrassing encounter with the only canonized saint that I've met so far, I know this hasn't disqualified me. I do think I can become a saint because not only is that potential real for all of us, 
That's God's greatest desire. The deepest desire in the heart of our Heavenly Father is for you and for me and every single one of us to be with Him forever. And at the most basic of levels, what makes a saint a saint is that they're in God's presence forever in this heavenly kingdom. And that's what these readings that we just heard are all about. It might not have sounded like that in that first reading where where God was talking to Moses. It sounds actually quite the opposite. Like God was done with the people as he says to Moses, let me alone then, that my wrath may blaze up against them to consume them. What happened here is that God had just saved his people from the Egyptians and their cruel slavery that had culminated in that huge moment of the parting of the Red Sea. God had shown them in all these mighty deeds and miracles and acts how much he loved them, how much he cared for them. And then he enters into a covenant where the people and God had made promises binding themselves together for all eternity to the point of saying that if either side had broken that covenant, they should be wiped out of existence. That's basically what a covenant meant. Just think about that. God agreed to those terms himself. He who had nothing to gain and everything to lose saw humanity as that worthy, that lovable, that desirous, that he puts himself on the line in such a dramatic way. But the people also agreed to that promise. And here it was, a grand total of 40 days later, and they break the covenant. They create these golden calves, which were symbols of the false pagan gods that their cruel Egyptian slave masters had followed and ordered them to worship, and they start worshiping them again. So it's understandable that God should want to wipe them out. And there's a part of Moses that at different points of the journey would definitely agree. But in this passage, at this moment, we hear him imploring God on their behalf. Not because the people deserve another second chance, but because Moses has been changed. He has seen and known and experienced God's love himself. It's changed and transformed him to become one of the beloved servants of the Lord. And what makes him a true beloved servant of the Lord is that Moses cares for God's people. So the reality is that while on the surface it sounds like Moses is pleading with God and trying to get God to change his mind, it's actually the opposite of what happened. Moses' heart has been transformed by the love of God. Moses is sacrificing, even though he's done nothing wrong, and interceding for people that, by any measure, don't really deserve it, because he has seen God face to face. Moses knows the incredibly merciful, lavishly generous love of the Lord, and he desperately wants the people to come to know and to love God as he does. And that's how he gives us a Christ-like image a thousand years before Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So fast forward to Jesus, 
the second person of the Trinity of one God in three persons, his whole reason for coming is to fulfill what Moses was beginning to do. And in him, we have God himself revealing the depths of how God sees us. Jesus makes it clear that you are seen, you are known, you're cared for. You are worthy of love. That's what's so moving about this gospel we just heard. You get the sense that Jesus is almost frustrated trying to find the way to explain this to us that we would understand how our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who created everything, who has everything, looks at each and every one of us. And so he comes up with these metaphors where he's trying to explain it. Say there are a hundred sheep and one gets lost. That shepherd is so anxious, he's so worried, he leaves the 99 in search of the one. Or say there are 10 coins and a woman loses one. She's so obsessed over that one, she turns her house upside down until she finds it. Jesus is so excited saying, you're that sheep, you're that coin, you're that important. You're that much on God's heart and mind. He doesn't stop searching. But it's like Jesus is thinking to himself, that doesn't quite capture it. Sheep aren't rational, logical beings. Coins are inanimate objects. They can't be blamed for becoming lost. So he goes a step further. Even if we're ungrateful and inconsiderate, and self-centered, even when we take advantage of God's goodness and his generosity and his mercy, when it would be understandable to think, that's it. We've exhausted his patience now. We've tapped out every favor. It's completely our fault that we're lost. We've maxed out on excuses and opportunities. Jesus responds to all those negative thoughts with this misnamed story, the prodigal son. Because in fact, it's the loving father. The loving father doesn't ever believe we're done. The loving father knows we've screwed up maybe many, many times to the point of complete embarrassment and shame. The loving father sees that heaviness in our hearts, that negativity that we beat ourselves up with. And the loving Father is anxiously waiting for us to wake up and to make that turn, to return to Him. That even when we feel that we're a long way off, as soon as the Father catches sight of our returning to Him, He's filled with compassion and He can't wait. He runs to us. He so knows us we can't even finish our words of apology. He's already so excited that he's forgiven and embraced us. Jesus' original listeners included people who didn't think that was possible. They too were conditioned into negativity in the world and in their own worlds. What prompted all this is that the Pharisees were, were complaining that Jesus welcomes and eats with sinners. 
Think about it. They don't even refer to Jesus by name, calling Jesus this man, which is what makes them the older brother in the story. The older brother can't even call the prodigal his brother or even refer to his dad as a father. Instead, what does he say? I've served you all these years. He reduces his relationship to being a slave, not a son, which is what Jesus sees and hears in the hearts of these critics, in their criticism, in their objections, as they zero in on their negative judgment of others. They've allowed the love of God to be eclipsed in their own lives, and they don't even see it, that all they have is a very surface level of faith, where it's all on just what they do and for show and how they act and how it looks. They deny that they too are sinners and need God's mercy. And so their experience of true love, how transformative it is in their lives, is eclipsed. They refuse to to receive this good news. Yet what does the father do in the story? He pleads with the son to see he's a son, which is so much more than what he's reduced himself to be. That's Jesus pleading with some of the ones who are going to conspire to kill him. That even in that, the most brutal and heinous of acts, he still wants them. And Jesus' resurrection vindicates that for all eternity. That the love of God is more powerful than the darkest, most evil designs that any soul or demon can ever design. And he wants us to know that. And wants that to change our lives and our visions. To like the younger son, to repent and to come home. To not be arrogant and foolish like the older son and just remain on a very surface level of faith. Do you think you can become a saint? The real question is, do you want to become a saint? Do we want to? We're not being called to to be another Mother Teresa. There was only one. And in that masterpiece of God's great design of creation, he only needed one of her. But what the gospel is trying to get us to see is that God sees us as just as important, just as worthy, just as loved, and has just as important a role to play in his creation. And as we come together at this Mass, that has to start to sink into the deepest core of ourselves. He's been actively searching for you like that shepherd for that one sheep. He hasn't stopped trying to find you, like that woman trying to turn her house upside down for that one coin. He hasn't stopped looking for you, longing for you, anxiously waiting for you to return as the father embraces the wayward son. May we allow that truth to embrace us, And may that transformative love change us so that we receive Jesus and become him to a world that desperately needs to hear that as well.